You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Good morning, everybody. I'm glad you uh, weathered the storm. We had quite a downpour here during the first service. In fact, uh, I pulled in this morning and uh, I dropped my wife off at the door. And then I, some of us are parking down uh, near the uh, shed all the way down at the bottom of the hill to make more space for people to park up here. So I pull down there and right then, man, it just cuts loose. So I have to get my cell phone out. I call my wife up here. I said, hey, there wouldn't happen to be an umbrella in the car. She goes, nope, you're on your own. And so uh, people saw a blue streak running up the steps. And uh, thank God for CrossFit. I took those and conquered those steps. But uh, man, I was soaked. My, my shirt was drenched. My hair was a mess. But uh, had to do an accelerated drying process uh, for that first service. But anyway, I'm glad you made it today. Hey, as you leave today, uh, we have a Christmas card that we wanna give to you as a team here at the church. And you'll see uh, all, the fam- all the people that serve in leadership on our main, our main leadership team, pastoral team, a lot of our employees and their spouses. Uh, we are now a major employer in Fauquier County. <laughs> and uh, so anyway... This is for uh, you and your family as you leave, so please take the time, if you would, to uh, take that. It's from our, our hearts to yours. We're so appreciative of everybody here and the role that you play in making everything happen here. So today we're, we're going into uh, the series we started. It's called Rediscovering Christmas Good News in Troubling Times. If you haven't noticed by now, the original Christmas story was not a perfect one. It was a messy scene. It was a messy time. And sometimes we forget that. We're all looking for that perfect Christmas and we forget that uh, Jesus' birth happened in spite of everything that was going on. And so uh, today we're gonna be looking at, we started last week on a prophecy that Isaiah gave. We're gonna look at another prophecy that he gave setting up the Christmas story for the next couple of weeks. So if you would stand for the reading of the word, we're gonna go to Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. And then we're going to read in Matthew's account where he has that uh, scripture as well in Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. Let's begin. Isaiah 7, 14. Everybody read with me. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray again, as I do every week, that you help us, not just to learn, but I pray God to grow, to develop, to address the areas in our life that you want to uh, grow uh, greater than it is now or to change in us. But we pray that the word would accomplish in us what you want it to do in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 
Amen. The Lord bless you and be seated today. So as, as you look at the Christmas story, if, I don't know if you realize this, but you know, there's not a lot of diversity when it comes to addressing the Christmas story. You know, it, it's pretty short. It's, there's only two accounts. You got Matthew's account, you got Luke, but you actually have a whole plethora of backdrop of prophecies in the Old Testament. And a lot of times, a lot of messages on Matthew, a lot of messages on Luke, but very little addressing the prophecies leading up to the birth of Christ. So that's why I did Isaiah last week. We'll be looking at another part of Isaiah today. But as we do that, we, I wanna help you, I wanna set this introduction up. And I'm just gonna say, this introduction is long today. In fact, you're gonna think the introduction is the sermon. In the first service, I got through the introduction and I had 10 minutes left. And they didn't believe in miracles until I got through my points in 10 minutes. <laughs> so it's a long setup, but there's a reason for this, okay? Um, a frequent challenge of the Bible is the Americanization of Bible stories. We don't necessarily set out to do that. We kind of do it by default. Why do we do that by default? Because the culture of the Bible is different than our own culture. And so it's just easy to misframe a story. We don't set out to misframe the Bible stories. We don't try to uh, get it to say something intentionally that, uh, that, that was not intended. But in a, because of a lack of information about the context of a particular story, the culture, it's just easy. We just impose what we want on it. Now, I give you a couple examples of this, okay? The Americanization of, of the Christmas story. Um, you know, when, when people want to, set up something like Jesus being born, you know, they, they get some nice lumber and they build a beautiful manger, you know, and they spread some hay and then they put baby Jesus in there, you know, in the church service or, or they set it up outside, you know, and there's that beautiful wooden frame. Did, did you know that the manger that Jesus was born into, that was actually a cave? It, it was not a wood structure. You know, the reason we do wood is it's just really hard to move rocks. And you know, we build it out of that, just out of convenience. But now, you know, you can see just how it just, oh, some of you are like, oh my gosh, I believed in the Christmas all the wrong. Relax, okay? It was, it was not done maliciously. It was just done as a sense of convenience, okay? And, and, and then another example, you know, you watch the stories of Christmas, whether sometimes on television or a church does this, and, you know, they do the Christmas play. You've probably seen variety of venues, and, you know, the shepherds show up, and then the wise men, you know, they come cruising in on the camels, you know, and it's just a moving scene. Did you know the wise men didn't make it to the manger, they actually showed up a couple months later at Jesus' house. Now, some of you are just, uh, oh my goodness, my whole story. Is, I, but okay, it doesn't change the meanings that we get, but you can see how it's so easy it is. We Americanize a story because of a lack of familiarity of the culture and the story of what is being said. So we superimpose these things. And so what happens is this, it, it can lead to biblical drifting and the loss of spiritual insight. Things drift, not, not because we're trying to get the story to say something we want it to, it just, it just happens. We have to understand how our brain works, okay? We take stories and then we boil them down to these uh, uh, shorter versions in our brain just so we can memorize them and learn. It's part of the process. It's part of being human, 
But you got to know that your humanity can be a problem from time to time. So that's why we always say text without context leads to pretext. It's a constant battle. It's a constant effort to stay in the word and, and to learn and to grow and develop. Because familiarity with stories can lead to false generalizations. It's because we're human, we do this. Now, I can tell you there's two things you do to combat this. Number one, that's why we come to church, okay? Because we get reminded of the framework of the Bible, okay? We get reminded of the kind, oh yeah, yeah, I knew you. How many have ever said, I knew that, but I forgot it? Okay, it's just, it's just who we are. And then the other part is when you, when you hear messages, don't be afraid to put notes in your Bible. You know that, hey, the next time I read this, I wanna remember this key point or this context so that it helps me to remember what I'm reading. Because again, our brain plays tricks on us. It's humanity. Here's a great, when I say familiarities can lead to false generalization, familiarity can cause us to miss the details. You've gone up and down your hallway a thousand times. But eventually you walk down the hallway, you get to the stairwell, you pause and you can't remember, was I on my way up or did I just come down? <laughs> you didn't know we knew that about you, did you? You've walked that hallway a thousand times. Now all of a sudden you can't remember, have I already been up there? How many have ever gone upstairs, come back downstairs and you totally forgot to bring down what you went up for? What, what, familiarity? Okay, the brain, the, the familiarity of, of, a, of a context can cause us to create false generalities. And it, it's a perfect example. That same thing can happen when we hear a Bible story over and over and over and over and over. If we're not careful, we start summarizing it in ways that helps us remember, but we may not have all the accurate facts. And so that's why it's important to hear things over and over again. Even you go, well, I've heard that before. I know that. But it's important to hear it again so that we don't forget what the story is so that we, we don't do what we call this drift. So it takes repeated exposure to the facts of a story to rewrite accepted false generalizations about a story. When I have an accepted false generalization, I don't dismiss it the first time I hear new facts. I have to be presented with it over and over because I'm unlearning while I'm relearning. Now, I can give you again an example of this. This is what happens in a courtroom. An attorney stands up, he has a jury, and if you watch what happens, the first thing is the attorney will lay out what he's going to do and what he's going to prove. And so he plants that seed in the jury's mind. Then he starts calling witnesses and he uses the witnesses to validate what he had just said earlier. And he's going into greater detail and greater expanse. Then at the end of the trial, he, gives a, he or she gives a summary of everything that he said from the get-go, from the witnesses, and then they rehearse it all over again. Why? Because juries can't be convinced just with one presentation. We understand how the mind works. When we have false assumptions, it takes repeated exposure to truth to get us going there, to get it unlearned because it's so rooted in us. And so today I'm talking on the virgin birth of Christ. You say, oh, well, 
Amen, I believe in that. I, I know all about it. Well, I, I probably will say some things that you have forgotten or maybe some things that you did not know because there's a whole backstory to where the virgin birth came from. Have you ever just wondered why God needed to have the virgin birth? Why couldn't he just say Jesus is gonna be born? Jesus was impressive even without the virgin birth. But why did God put that in? Why? Why was that even necessary? There were a whole plethora of things to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. But why did he put that in? Why did he make it that much more like, wow, that's really gonna be an interest. How are you gonna do that? How are you gonna pull that off? Why did, why did God do that? Well, there's a backstory to all this. So we're gonna begin to look at, again, some things in Isaiah, where it is, it is a scripture, 714, where he announced that he was going to come from a virgin. But what's the context of all that? We're gonna look at that. And I, listen, I've shared this before, but the key thing here is this, to be reminded of how critical and what sets our faith apart from so many other faiths in the world. We're not just another faith. We serve the God. And he presents himself in such a unique way and proves himself in such a unique way that you have the faith, you have the religions of the world, and then you have God as an outlier who is so far out of the box that you have to go, there's something different here. Well, this is one of those items. So the name Isaiah means Yahweh's salvation. I shared this last week. And he was from a wealthy family, well-educated, political insider in Judah. So he knew all the kings. He probably grew up with many of them. He would have been educated with them. He also would have had exposure to all the world leaders of his day. So when they were in school and they were younger and Isaiah was younger, he would have had an overlap. So he knew people before they came, became anybody. And now he sees the world stage, how it's playing out. He knows that king from that nation. He knows that advisor. He knows his king. He knows the king that he has. He knows that guy's dad. I mean, he knows everybody. So he is reading what I call boots on the ground, what's going on and what he's seeing. And so he served during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, who were the kings of Judah. Now let me set this up again. Israel has had a civil war and the nation is now divided. Some of the tribes up north broke off. They maintained the name Israel. The southern kingdom recalled it, it called itself Judah, and they kept Jerusalem. This is where people get confused in Bible history because now all of a sudden you've got Jerusalem that doesn't belong to Israel, it belongs to Judah. How many know that can get really confusing? It's just easy to go, well, if it's Israel, they got, they got Jerusalem. Not in this part. Israel's north, but they don't have Jerusalem. So he's in Judah. These are the kings. And what's interesting is he serves four kings. Generally, you would experience just one king change in your lifetime because kings lived or reigned until they died. Now, they would die in battle or they would die of ill health or something, or sometimes they got assassinated, okay? But it wasn't a political turnover every four years, every two years, every six. So the fact that he experienced four kings in his lifetime Pretty, uh, pretty unique guy. And here's the thing. Uzziah was a great king. In fact, he would rank just behind probably King David as one of the greatest kings uh, that they ever had. 
And then you come two generations later, you got Ahaz. He is declared now to be one of the, he is the worst king that they ever had. So in two generations, they've gone from the best to the worst. And people are disillusioned. How could it flip so quickly, so bad? And when I say, we're gonna talk about how this guy took the nation off the rails, literally off the rails. And the people are powerless to do anything. And the prophet, and here's what's interesting. Isaiah is in the hallways. He knows this king, he knows his advisors. In fact, Isaiah is able to have audience with this guy. And he shares in his, in his writings in Isaiah, he tells us what he says to Ahaz. Have you ever wondered what do you do when you get, we all go, what do you say when you get in the room with greatness? You know, I don't want to embarrass myself, right? I, don't want, I want to say something. Have you ever thought about what do you do when you get in the room with the most wicked thing that the world knows at the time? What do you say? What do you, what do you say when you get in the room with somebody who is causing death and destruction at an unprecedented level, and you now have audience with that person. What do, you, what do you say? How do you address them? Because you know they have authority that if they don't like what you're saying, <laughs> it could go bad for you. Retirement may not be a concern. <laughs> so, let's look at Ahaz. I told you this is a long setup, but the setup makes things so obvious as to why these prophecies that Isaiah gave were so monumental in what God was doing. So Ahaz was king around 734 BC, and this is when Isaiah begins to have a confrontation with Ahaz. In 2 Chronicles 28, 2 Kings 16, and now Isaiah 7 through 12, he describes uh, Ahab's reign. In fact, what I preached last week would have been directed to Ahaz as well about how the Messiah was gonna clean things up and the government was gonna be on his shoulders. Then you come to the fact that he's not, he became king when he was around 20 years of age. He reigned 16 years. So he, he actually died fairly young. So he was from age 20 to age 36. He was, he was the king at a really, really young age. But here's the thing. When he became king, he let it be known that he, was not, that he was wholly opposed to the religious beliefs and practices of his nation. It's unbelievable. Uzziah's his grandfather, a godly guy. He was raised in the faith. He was grown. He's cultivated in the faith. He was told, one day you're going to be the king. Here's the lineage that you come from, the kings of this of this nation, they serve God. Our people, they serve God. That's our temple. This is where we do this. And on the day that he's put in, he says, I'm, I'm not for any of this. I don't like it. I'm not for it. I don't approve of it. I don't, I don't want to practice this. In fact, he even says, not only am I not going to practice this, I don't want you practicing it. Literally, the guy flips a switch and he closes and he shuts down the temple and he stops the services. This is the God that people have been told is the God of their nation. And you got a king who says, nope, not only you're I'm gonna stop you, I'm gonna close the temple. No more. Well, it doesn't stop there. How many know evil never has a satisfaction? It keeps going. 
The appetite for sin never finds fulfillment. It just keeps going. And so it wasn't enough that he closed the tabernacle, the, the temple. It wasn't enough that he, he was stopping people. Then he goes around and he starts creating idols for worshiping Baal. He reestablished pagan sacrifices and the burning of incense at high places. He went to visit Assyria. And while he's there, he saw this magnificent altar in one of their temples to an Assyrian God. And he ordered that the construction of that altar be replicated in the temple, even before he returned to get started on it. And then he began the practice of child sacrifices with Moloch. What's that? Child sacrifices were not something that was a routine thing. It was done when you were in a jam. When you were up against the odds, you, when you felt like you were in a corner and you, you, know, you were gonna go under if something didn't change, they would counsel you, well, maybe you need to consider sacrificing one of your children to the God. Can you imagine going to a counselor and the advice is, well, have you considered sacrificing one of your children? But the, you go, that's, that's sick. Yeah, but can you understand... The fact that this has become a part of their society, does that kind of tell you how far it's gone? That that's actually advised? Now, what would happen, I don't want to get overly graphic, but you got to understand what this entailed. Moloch had these hands out in front of him and they were on a swivel. And so the patrons, uh, there was a stairwell that would go to the top of the god of Moloch and you would stand on the head. There was a platform up there and the hands would be brought up and you would lay your child in these hands and they were then lowered into the fire while they listened as that child was consumed. What has to happen in a person's brain that they would call that worship? But it goes to show, Ahab got, or Ahaz got put in a corner. He thought he was gonna be defeated. He was, he was boxed in. He was desperate as a king. And he gave one of his children. He just didn't tell people that this is what they ought to do. He himself practiced this. He was boxed in and he offered a child to the God of Moloch to get him out of trouble. So you're Isaiah. What do you say to a guy like that? What do you, where do you start? It gets worse. Because like I said, sin's appetite is never satisfied. When he did finally put up a fight, it was disastrous. He went to a battle against Reza, king of Aram, which was the king of Damascus, and Pekah, king of Israel. Ahaz lost 120,000 soldiers to death and 200,000 soldiers captured in one day. Now, I don't want to minimize the sacrifices and the tragedies that this country has seen. We've seen a couple thousand people die in a, in a, in a day in a terrorist act, right? In, 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 even in World War II, the, the attack on Pearl Harbor, tragic. Can you imagine the death toll being 120,000? Can you imagine also being told that another 200,000 people were carried into captivity? You would, you would just go, we're doomed, I mean, you can't, you can't lose that kind of manpower and, and put up a fight. You, you, you've, you've decimated the ranks. You've lost the best of the best, the people who are trained. We've got other people, but they're not trained like that. And what are we going to do? So you can understand the panic that has set in in, in Judah. They're like, this is a bad day. 
they think they're now going to be extinct as a people. This is not surviving as a nation. This is about, we actually think we're gonna go extinct. We will disappear. All these prophecies that we've heard over the decades, over the centuries about our nation and about the Messiah, uh, it looks like it's just about to all be wiped out. So again, you're Isaiah. What do you say? I'll summarize it this way. Very quickly, I gotta skip a couple things. This Ahaz was so wicked, he was not buried in the king's tombs. They said, this guy's not even worthy and revered to be called a king of Judah. He will be buried someplace else, but he will not be buried where the kings are buried. Wow. You can imagine somebody saying that about one of our presidents like, hey, uh, that one, he's so awful. He has done such devastation. There's not gonna be any national mourning. We're, we're not even telling people where he gets buried. Now you'd go, well, we would never do that. Well, I'm sure they felt that way. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not proponing, I'm not saying that for, but I want you to get what it would have been like as a person to have that happen and how that would affect everybody's psyche, okay? Do you, do you realize what would have to happen to us to get to that position, to think that that was okay? That was normative? Yeah, rediscovering Christmas, good news in troubling times. The word troubling times is, probably doesn't even do it justice. How about awful, horrific? That many people that were killed in one day, that's almost, that's a holocaust in itself. All right, so what's, let's look at this prophecy. We're gonna go to Isaiah chapter seven. The prophecy is in verse 14, but how many know, you've heard me before, we've got this thing called context. Can I read what comes before that so we get the feel of what's going on here? Okay, I'll talk to those seven. The rest of you just watch. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king resident of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, and the trees of the forest are, shaking, are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Let me translate that. The king's in hiding and he went to a laundromat. <laughs> now there's a leader you can follow, right? Go get him, troops. Where are you gonna be? I'm gonna... I don't know, I think I gotta go do some laundry. God tells Isaiah, let me tell you where the man's hiding. He's not leading, he's hiding. God tells him where to go. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. But I like what God calls enemies. Bunch of smoldering stubs of firewood. 
because of the fierce anger of Rezin and, and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son applauded your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tobias king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. Wouldn't you think that would be like, you know, Ahaz is getting excited now? Like I've really been a horrible leader and God wants to help me. But that's not his response. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will, will be too shattered to be a people. So he's saying, look, some of these folks coming against you, they're not even gonna be around. So don't sweat it. I've already numbered their days. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. Now look, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Boy, if there's anything you ought to underline in that text, that's it. Sometimes all you got is your faith. And he is telling Ahaz, stand in your faith. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. He knows that Ahaz is going, yeah, right. And he says, ask me for a sign. You don't believe me? Ask me for a sign. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. He says, let me translate that. He's basically saying this. I'm not buying what you're selling. I don't believe in this God. You have a false assumption. You assume that I believe in the God that you're talking to me about. I don't believe him. I will not worship him. I said I would not worship him. I canceled his worship here in this nation and I'm not changing today. Sin can be really stupid. God throws a lifeline and you throw it back. God says that was a lifeline. Don't, if it's a lifeline from you, God, I'm not interested. I'd rather go down than take help from you. You know, there's people that are that defiant. Then Isaiah said, here now. So here's, here's what Isaiah responds to Ahaz saying, I'm not asking God for help. Then Isaiah said, here now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? And then the verse we like. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and he will call him Emmanuel. He used an interesting word in the, in the Hebrew. Ahaz probably thought Isaiah used the wrong word because there are two words for virgin. There's, there's this one that is used of a married woman who is a pure in moral character. And that would be the one that you would just assume that would have been used. Instead, he used another word for virgin, which means an unmarried woman of good character who's pure and she becomes pregnant, even though she never had sexual relations. And that's the word that Isaiah, and I'm sure Ahaz went, uh, I think you just used the wrong word, dude. But what, what God was saying was this. There's no level of king's wickedness that can stop my plan. I don't have to have your participation. I can bring my son into the world with or without you. Hmm. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the right, wrong, and choose the right. So eating curds and honey was the diet of royalty. So God is telling Ahaz, I already have somebody appointed to sit at the table that you now sit. 
he'll be eating your food. And for before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you, uh, you dread will be laid waste. And basically God says, you don't want to cooperate with my plan. Your wickedness doesn't cancel my plan. Because see, according to the, the prophecies, it had to come, the Messiah was coming from the Davidic lineage, which was a lot of the kings. But what happens if a king decides not to be a part of that? What if he breaks the lineage? And God says, that's all right. I don't need you to get a woman pregnant. I can do it without you because I'm God. And by the way, I'll give a little diverge, uh, uh, you know, take a little side note here. So by doing this, by the fact that she was a woman but was not with a man when she was pregnant, that was showing that Jesus was human and yet God. Make sense? When, when Jesus was on the cross, when he died, he proved that he was human. He died. But when he rose from the dead, he proved that he was God. You'll find this all the way through the stories of Jesus. God constantly saying he's, he's human, but he's God. He's, he's, in, he's God in flesh. He's both. He's not either or. He's both. And there's evidences that are continually given. Now we'll get back to the message, okay? All right? So here's a couple points before we leave. I've got about seven, eight, maybe nine. No, I just got four, really. So that was, that was all introduction, folks. So what's the point? What's the point of this? Four things, very quick. Regardless of what we see or hear, know that God is speaking to the leaders. If God is speaking to an Ahaz, later on in the New Testament, there was a King Herod who tried to kill the Messiah. If God is talking to Ahaz and God is talking to Herod, he is talking to all the leaders that are over us and around us all throughout the world. God has a way of having an audience with them. You even read in Genesis when Joseph was in prison, God gave Pharaoh dreams that upset him. And, and Pharaoh had to search for somebody who could interpret the dream. You read the same thing. Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel had dreams that upset him. And it was Daniel and his friends that came and interpreted those things. The point being is this. I may not have an inside line like Isaiah to know that everything what God is saying to national leaders, but God is having a conversation with national leaders. Now that doesn't mean they're cooperating. But I can assure you he's talking. Now, what their response is to that, I don't know yet. I think, I think in the future, we always know these kinds of things. You know, things have a way. History has shown us that there was always more going on than we knew. But I just say that, know that God is talking to the leaders. And now we have to discern, I wonder how much they're listening to him. And then number two, God promises were in motion before you were born. We have joined God's plan. We do not ask God to join our plan. God's activity, his prophecies were in motion. You and I have been granted life. And you know what? If Jesus tarries and you and I die, guess what? His plans go on. You and I are a part of his momentum. Our prayer needs to be, show me how I contribute to what you're doing. Even Jesus said this in the Gospel of John. He was asked about his miracles. And when Jesus said this, I can't do anything I don't see the Father doing. That runs contrary to a lot of Americanization's doctrines, like Jesus could do anything. And you go, wait a minute. 
Jesus said he couldn't do anything that he didn't see his father doing. Jesus said he had a lid. If the father wasn't doing it, he couldn't do it. So if, the Jesus, if Jesus has a lid, how much more do you and I have a lid? So it comes down to this, thy will, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is in heaven. Can you show me what you're doing so I know how to cooperate? Anybody, okay. If you haven't noticed by now, I'm not short on ideas on what God might possibly should do with his power. Come on, how many have ever advised God what you think he ought to do? <laughs> Lord, if you uh, don't know exactly what to do, I've got some suggestions. And we assume that he's uninformed. We assume that he doesn't know what to do. And we assume that we know more than he does. And so we present our prayer request, not as prayer requests, we're counseling God. And it should be just the other way around. God, I have no idea what you're doing. Help me. Show me what. His momentum preceded my birth and will continue afterwards. The third thing is this. God's redemptive power is greater than the power of sin. Okay, I'll try that again. His redemptive power is greater than the power of sin. I can't sin to the degree that God has to cancel his plans. Because then I'm saying my sin is greater than his power. And God says, oh, you can throw curveballs, don't worry, I'll hit them all out. Look at this in Matthew chapter one. This is the lineage of Jesus. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. There you go, good godly king, Uzziah. We would expect a good godly king to be in the lineage of Jesus, right? Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Whoa, what's he doing there? How can a guy like that be in the lineage of the Messiah? He should be booted and there should be a substitute. I mean, after all, shouldn't we get somebody a little more respectable in the lineage of the Messiah? Why is he there? Because the promises of God are greater than the power of sin that came through Ahaz. This is a statement, Ahaz, you screwed up, you messed up, you defied me, but you did not stop my plan. God's redemptive power is greater than any sin that anybody could throw at God to try to get God to stop what he's trying to do in people's lives. Listen, God's promises are gonna happen. The only question you wanna find out, am I gonna cooperate with it? be on the inside where the blessing is or am I gonna find myself on the outside where the judgment is? But his prophecies are going to come true. The question is, is where do I find myself? Am I in or I'm out? By the way, this also shows you the power to redeem people's lives and momentums. Sometimes people will say, you have no idea about the heritage of my life. You don't know the negative momentum that was handed to me. You don't know what my mom was, my dad was. You don't know what my grandparents, you don't know all the background of our family. It is messed up, it's bad. You don't know the junk that I inherited. And what you need to understand is this, as I read Matthew chapter one, it really doesn't matter what was handed off to you because there's a gospel that is greater than any momentum that was handed off to you in a negative fashion. If the Messiah can come from an Ahaz, 
God can redeem you. God can change your storyline. God gives you the ability to create a momentum that should have been handed off to you, but you didn't get handed off to you. God says, well, then we'll start with you. I'll give you the ability to create a new momentum for your lineage, for your genealogy, so that when people look back, they go, now that's when everything changed right there. That guy, that woman, that relative of mine, they pivoted and everything changed. God's power is greater than anything negative that the enemy can throw. And the last one is this, everybody read it. That's what Emmanuel means. He's not out there, he's not over there, he's not over there, he's right here. He says, I'm with you. He told the people of Israel under Ahaz, I'm with you. I'm with you. It doesn't cancel all the difficult stuff that happens in our life. But it sure does, it's nice to know you've got a counselor, a wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace, mighty God walking with you, right? He's with you. You are not alone. And everybody said amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet as we wrap this up today. Can you praise him for being a God who's with you? You determine what that relationship is, but I can tell you this, God has not abandoned you, he's there. The question you have to answer is, have I responded to it appropriately? But come on, let's praise him that he's a God who's with us. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. We're gonna close the service a little bit differently this morning. So I'm gonna go ahead and ask some of the connection group leaders and some of the leadership team, would you make your way to the front? And I recognize that life is imperfect. It has all kinds of twists and turns. And as Pastor Malik leads us in a song, today might be the day that you say, I need to give my life to Jesus. I'm gonna ask you, step in the aisle and just come and just, when you come to one of these folks, say, hey, I'm here to accept Jesus. But I also know that just because it's Christmas, the difficulties of life don't get canceled. There are things when we go, Lord, I need you with us. I need a miracle. Can I, how many will give me one more minute? Okay. So our miracle came over the weekend. My sister, her husband, he's been on a kidney transplant list for seven, eight years. Three weeks ago, they thought they had a match. Called them, get them to Kansas City, we're ready to do it. They put the kidney under stress and it failed. Sent him back home. Just took the wind out of everybody's sails. Last Sunday, they were in church and a couple gave a testimony of how God had brought them through a transplant. So my brother-in-law, my sister went forward and said, would you pray for us? Because we've been at this seven, eight years and we just had one who just, it just imploded on us. And so we don't know what to do. We're so frustrated. And that couple said, we just believe that this is the year that God's gonna let that happen. Friday morning, they got a call and said, get to Kansas City. We got a perfect match for the kidney. And by 10 p.m. Friday night, my brother-in-law had a brand new kidney. 
I was on a speakerphone with her and him this morning, uh, him yesterday morning, and he says, "Man, the kidney's already working, man. I, you know, I'm, I'm, it's functioning. I'm producing urine. I'm so excited." <laughs> and uh, you know, sometimes you just get setback after setback after setback, and you're like, "Why, why, 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 why?" Can I tell you, God's with you. Don't lose that. You don't know how close you might be to the breakthrough that you've been waiting on for seven, eight years. Don't quit. So as we sing a song, you need a prayer. I want you to make your way, then we're gonna dismiss everybody. But come on, let's lift our voices as they sing. And if you have a need, make your way today. Come on, lift your voice now.